following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Have you ever had one of those moments in life when your ignorance was exposed? Can you think of a time when you came to realize how little you knew about an important subject? I recently had one of these sobering moments. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I found ourselves at a bank, rearranging and reorganizing some of our financial matters. Now, as our advisor pulled up our file on her computer, I came to a sobering and embarrassing realization. Although I acted like I was all up to speed, in reality, I was completely ignorant about some important truths. I realized at that moment that I didn't know how much we still owed on our mortgage. I didn't know how much time was remaining on the term of our mortgage. I didn't even know what was the rate we were paying on our mortgage. I know, it's embarrassing. Now, I should stipulate that my wife knew all of these things, but I didn't know any of these things. This was embarrassing. I mean, these were crucial matters. We're talking about our home, the most important financial investment I'll ever make in life. And I was, for the most part, completely in the dark. Now, what do my finances have to do with your life, you're asking? Well, actually, today I'm starting up a GoFundMe campaign. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Seriously, though, why am I beginning a sermon by talking about my financial ignorance? Here's the reason. I'm wondering if my ignorance when it comes to my mortgage is similar to many people's ignorance when it comes to the Holy Spirit. I'm wondering if many people are as in the dark regarding the most important relationship they'll ever have as I was in the dark regarding the most important financial investment I will ever have. How familiar are you with the Holy Spirit? Let me ask you a simple question. Now, it's going to feel like a trick question, but it's not a trick question. Trust me on this. It's a very important question. In fact, it's a question that will expose how much or how little we know about a crucial topic. Here's the question. As Christ followers today, do we directly interact with Jesus? As Christ followers today, do you and I directly interact with Jesus? Do you know the answer? Before you leave this building today, you are going to know the answer to this question. We're beginning a new series we've entitled Holy Spirit University. Over the next few weeks, we're going to school. Think of each week as a class dedicated to one subject, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. Now, in this series, we're going to do all that we can to learn about who the Spirit is, what the Spirit does, and what it means to live in relationship with Him. And today, we're going to begin at the beginning. Today, we're asking and answering a most foundational question. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Now, I want you to notice something right off the top. I didn't say, what is the Holy Spirit? I said, who is the Holy Spirit? The difference between what and who is enormous. But it's a difference that many Christ followers seem to miss. 
Years ago, I was pastoring a church other than Broadway, and, and we had a guest choir come and visit us. They were excellent. They were from a Christian university south of the border. High-quality singing, high-quality young adults. It was an excellent presentation. And there's about 50 of these students uh, on the choir risers in the congregation where I was, and, and this college was spelting out some powerful songs. But one of the lyrics to one of the songs caught my attention. It shocked me, in fact. Here's the lyric they were singing. You might know the song. Send it on down, send it on down. Lord, let the Holy Ghost come on down. You can tap your toe to this one. Send it on down, send it on down. Lord, let the Holy Ghost come on down. Now, don't let the word ghost trip you up. That's simply an archaic English term or synonym for spirit. It wasn't the word ghost that shocked me. It was the word it that shocked me. Send it on down. Send it on down. Lord, let the Holy Ghost come on down. Now, why did that two-letter word bother me so much? Imagine if I was looking for my wife, Jan, and I used this language. Uh, excuse me, has, has anyone seen my wife? Has anyone seen Jan? Where is it? Where is it? Is it up there? Where is it? Oh, Jan's up there? Send it on down. You'd feel, ooh, you'd be kind of cringing. Darren, you don't talk about your wife like that. My wife is not an it. Is the Holy Spirit an it? Some people get a little confused in this area. Some people seem to think of the Holy Spirit as some type of force or as God's power being expressed. Sort of like some sorcerer in a movie and the sorcerer expresses his will or his power as lightning bolts come from his fingertips. And some people tend to think of the Holy Spirit that way. Is that what the Holy Spirit is? Is the Holy Spirit a force? Is the Holy Spirit God's energy that he uses to zap people? That's what we're going to investigate for the next few moments. Now, when it comes to the nature of God, the writers of Scripture gave us a gradual revelation over the centuries. God didn't reveal himself fully all at once. He did it over centuries. So from the very beginning, as your outline says, Scripture reveals that there's only one God, one supreme being, one singular soul, one essence known as God. The Bible says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, for centuries, this was the main thing that God revealed about himself to the world, that there is one God, and this God alone is the source of all creation, and there are no other gods. And then, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, God revealed even more about himself to us. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Scripture further reveals that this one singular soul is actually home to three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we taught extensively on this a couple of months ago here at Broadway where we answered the question, what is the Trinity? You might want to look that up online and you can follow along on that teaching. But the last words that came out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew's gospel are these. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
Notice Jesus didn't say in the names of. Jesus said in the name of. It's not plural, it's singular. It's one name. One God revealed in three persons. Now, what do we mean by the word person? Person does not mean human. You can be a person and not be a human. Angels are persons, but they're not humans. So what does it mean to be a person then? What does it mean if someone's a person? What qualities must one possess in order to be considered a person? A person is a center of self-consciousness, meaning a person has the ability to think and to express, I am. I think, therefore I am. You know, I exist. I, you. They are centers of self-consciousness, and they're a being with intellect, emotions, and a will. They just don't run on instinct. They have wills. On this planet, there's only one species that has the quality of personhood. That's you, human beings. No other creature on earth is a center of self-consciousness with intellect, emotions, and a will. All other earthly creatures are either simple biological machines that respond to stimuli, like insects, or they're higher functioning beings that operate on instinct, like dogs or apes. By the way, if you're wondering, cats are low functioning beings that operate under the influence of the devil. Now, that's just my opinion. I have absolutely no scriptural backing for that whatsoever. Mind you, the Bible does say that the devil roams about like a roaring lion, member of the cat family, but I'll leave that with you. We digress. So then, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God revealed himself to be one being, one soul, that supports three distinct persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One soul home to three distinct minds. Now, admittedly, at first, we have trouble grasping this concept because this is not our experience of reality as human beings. Our experience of reality as human beings is one person per one soul. For us, there's a one person per soul limit. So I can't say, yes, I'm Darren Latham, and I'm Joe, and I'm Bob. No, the rule of thumb for human beings is one person per one soul. That's our experience of reality, but that's not God's experience of reality. I remember the first time I met someone who had an arranged marriage. An arranged marriage meaning, you know, well, I said to them, I said, so you didn't meet your spouse in high school or college or at church or at work or something and, and have the, a, a romantic relationship and date and then get engaged and so on? They said, no, no. They said, I met my now spouse um, after my parents and, and their parents had, had made an arrangement long beforehand and then they introduced us to each other and uh, shortly afterwards, we were officially married. I said, whoa, whoa, sit down. We need to talk. And I peppered them with all kinds of questions about this experience of having an arranged marriage. It fascinated me. Completely different from my experience. But just because something isn't my experience doesn't make it irrational or impossible. It's true when it comes to marriages. It's true when it comes to souls. The human experience is one person inhabiting one soul. God's experience is three persons inhabiting one soul. 
Well, so far at the Holy Spirit University, we've learned two key truths. Scripture reveals that there's only one God, one supreme being, one singular soul. Scripture further reveals that this one singular soul is home to three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, the person known as the Father is revealed. Scripture says, he will call out to me, you are my Father, my God, the rock, my Savior. So, for centuries, humanity interacted with God through the Father, the person known as the Father. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed or worship revered be your name. So, for centuries, that was the human experience of interacting with God. They interacted with the person we know as the Father. Well, as your outline says, in the New Testament, the person known as the Son is then sent into the world. Jesus said this in John 3, 16, 17. For God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave, the Father gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, in the Son, will not perish, but they'll have eternal life. For God, the Father, did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, no, but he did it to save the world through him. And what was even more fascinating was the revelation that the person known as the Son was actually God in flesh. The Bible says, the Apostle Paul wrote this, in Christ, the Son, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Paul said, when Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth, he wasn't just a mere mortal. He wasn't some angel. He was God in flesh. All the fullness, all the attributes that God possesses, the Son possesses. And he possessed on earth in bodily form. He was God in flesh. Why did God do this? Why did the Son take on human flesh? He did it so we could interact with him. We could directly interact with him as human beings. So he could teach us and communicate with us. And then he could give his life as a ransom. He died in our place. The wages that sin pays, the Bible says, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. So God took on flesh so he could give up his life as a ransom. He could pay our moral debt. And he offered this as a gift so you could be forgiven, so I could be forgiven. Because he himself was sinless, he rose from the dead and now offers us eternal life as a gift. Have you received this gift? If you haven't, before you leave today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray with me and to receive this gift of eternal life and salvation. So then, the Father is a distinct person, intellect, emotion, and will. The Son is a distinct person with intellect, emotion, and a will. They are distinct, yet they're one, meaning they exist in complete unity, sharing the same soul. And they're both referred to as God. But there's still more that's revealed. And it's this next piece that we want to focus on in this first class of Holy Spirit University. Earlier, we asked some questions. We asked, is the Holy Spirit an it? Is the Holy Spirit a force? Is the Holy Spirit God's energy that he uses to zap people? 
Listen to the words of Jesus as recorded in the 14th chapter of John's gospel. Jesus said this, I, the Son, will ask the Father, and he, the Father, will give you another advocate, some versions say counselor, to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he, the spirit of truth, lives with you and he will be, in the future, he will be in you. But the advocate or counselor, depending on your version, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. So as your outline says, in the New Testament, the person known as the Son promises that the person known as the Father will send the person known as the Holy Spirit into the world. You can see I want to emphasize this personhood. The person known as the Son promises that the person known as the Father will send the person known as the Holy Spirit into the world. You say, well, how do we know that the Holy Spirit is a person? Well, notice in this passage, Jesus assigns personal pronouns to the Holy Spirit. He refers to the Spirit as him and he. And Jesus also attributes a role to the Holy Spirit that only a person could fulfill. Jesus declares that the Holy Spirit will be an advocate, or as many scholars translate that original word in the Greek language, a a counselor. So the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, is an advocate, someone who speaks on your behalf like a lawyer, or a counselor. This is crucial. Imagine that I'm called uh, into a courtroom and accusations are made against me and and I I need to defend myself. And so the the judge says to me, "Uh, Mr. Latham, so who will be speaking on your behalf? And I'll say, right here, Your Honor. It's a dictionary. Every word in the English language is in this dictionary. So every word required to defend me can be found in this book. So my advocate is this book, this dictionary. Chances are I don't have a good chance of winning my case, do I? Because a dictionary can't speak on my behalf. A dictionary can't advocate on my behalf. A dictionary is an inanimate object. It's not a person. It's just a thing. It's an it. And an it can't be an advocate. Or even with the word counselor. You know, so I'm struggling with some things. I have some thoughts and feelings and emotions that I just, some knots that I need to untangle. So I'm going to go to a counselor. So I go to this owl cookie jar. Okay, counselor. Yes. So I've got some issues. Well, my family's really bothering me. My wife, my kids. Got some things at work some stuff that's really weighing heavy on me. I just want to share with you all that's going on in my life right now. So here it is. And Well, started when I was a child. And then I go on and I talk to my owl cookie jar for a good hour or so. And then I put $120 in the jar and I walk away. Now, does that not look like a wise owl cookie jar? <laughs> you say... Darren, if your counselor is a cookie jar, albeit an owl cookie jar, 
chances are you're not going to get a lot of benefit, a lot of help. Why? Because a cookie jar is not a person. A cookie jar is an inanimate object. A cookie jar is a thing, an it, not a person with self-awareness, emotion, intellect, and a will. Being an advocate or a counselor requires being a person. And the Holy Spirit is an advocate. The Holy Spirit is a counselor. Now, in other passages in the New Testament, the personhood of the Holy Spirit is even clearer. Listen to how in Acts chapter 13, Luke describes the early Christ followers' interaction with the Holy Spirit. Luke says, while they, those Christ followers, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Notice here the Holy Spirit speaks. Only persons can speak. Only persons can verbalize intelligent concepts. And when the Holy Spirit speaks, he refers to himself as me and I. But there's still more reasons to recognize the Holy Spirit as a person. According to the author of the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit can be insulted. Describing those who once followed Christ but have now willfully and decidedly turned their backs on Christ, the writer says this in Hebrews 10. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated the, uh, as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant so that sanctifies them? So Jesus spilled blood on their behalf. That they've just mocked it. And who has insulted the Spirit of grace. You can't insult a force. You can't diss a bolt of energy. You can only insult a person, and according to the writer of Hebrews, you can insult the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is referred to by Jesus in personal pronouns. The Holy Spirit is assigned a role that only a person can fulfill. The Holy Spirit speaks. When the Holy Spirit speaks, he refers to himself using the terms me and I. And the Holy Spirit can be insulted, but there's still more. According to the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit can experience emotions. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul wrote, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Wind doesn't grieve. Lightning isn't sad. Only persons grieve, and the Holy Spirit can be grieved. So the testimony of Scripture is abundantly clear. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not God's energy. Just like the Father is a person, just like the Son is a person, the Holy Spirit is a person. And just like the Father and just like the Son, the Holy Spirit is God. The early church in the first century, they, they had a, a special fundraising campaign in Jerusalem. There were tough times going on in Jerusalem. And so what happened was, according to the Acts chapter 4 anyway, a man named Barnabas was so moved with generosity that all on his own, he sold a piece of property that he owned, he brought the money to the apostles, and he symbolically laid it at the apostles' feet. Essentially, he was saying, here, take it. Use it to help others. Now, apparently, the generosity of Barnabas inspired others. The Bible says in the book of Acts, now, a man, another Christ follower, named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. They did this on their own volition. No one asked them or told them to do it. 
With his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So apparently, in the context here, Ananias sold the property. So let's say he sold it for 1,000 shekels. He kept 500 shekels for himself, laid the other 500 shekels at the apostles' feet, and made it look like that's how much money he got for the property. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you receive for the land? Now, first let's note another evidence for the personhood of the Holy Spirit here. Peter said you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You can't lie to a force. You can't lie to a bolt of energy. You can only lie to a person. But keep reading. There's something even bigger in this passage about the nature of the Holy Spirit. Peter goes on to say, listen, didn't this money belong to you before, this property didn't belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You could have done whatever you wanted with it. What made you think of doing such a thing? Why would you think of lying about something like this? You have lied to the Holy Spirit, and you have not lied to just human beings but to God. Just like the Father, just like the Son, the Holy Spirit is a person. And just like the Father, just like the Son, the Holy Spirit is referred to as God. Send it on down. Send it on down. Lord, let the Holy Ghost come on down. Send it on down. Send it on down. Lord, let the Holy Ghost come on down. I hope that lyric is starting to bother you as much as it bothers me. Today, in this first class of our Holy Spirit University course, we've learned that the Holy Spirit is not an it or a force or God's energy. We have learned that the Holy Spirit is a person. But the Holy Spirit is not just any person. The Holy Spirit is one of the three persons that make up the Trinity. Now, as we get closer to revealing the big idea for today, let's revisit the words of Jesus that we looked at a moment ago, the portion from John chapter 14. The context is this. Jesus has just informed the disciples that he is soon going to have to leave them. Well, as you can imagine, hearing that, just the thought devastated the disciples. So Jesus responded by giving them this incredibly encouraging information. He says, no, earlier he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Don't worry. He said, I will ask the Father, and the Father will give you another advocate or counselor to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world can't accept the Spirit of truth because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know the Spirit of truth, for he lives with you. At that moment, he lived with them. But in the future, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, as we now know, he will live or will be in you. Now he's just beside you. There's going to come a day when he's actually going to be in you, living within you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, whom the Father will send in my name, under my authority, in other words, with my blessing, the Spirit will teach you all things and he'll remind you of everything I've said to you. What Jesus was telling them was this. saying, gang, listen. There is going to be a radical shift in how things operate in the very near future. Right now, you're interacting with God through me, through the Son. 
However, that is soon going to change in a dramatic way. Very soon, I, the son, Jesus, am going to leave this earth. No, Jesus, no. No, listen, it's okay. I'm going to the return to be with the Father. But I won't leave you alone. I'm not going to abandon you. You will still have direct and immediate access to God. Because when I depart, the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit. And he will be with you in an incredibly intimate way. Because he will dwell within you. Your spirit and God's spirit will live in 24-hour-a-day, uninterrupted fellowship with God, fellowship and instruction. Your spirit, God's spirit, living and dwelling continually, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's what he's saying. I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and he will be in you. But the advocate, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and remind you of everything that I said to you. A few moments ago, I began by asking you an important question. I told you it might feel like a trick question, but it wasn't a trick question. Remember, I asked you this. As Christ followers today, do we directly interact with Jesus? Over the last few minutes, we've gradually unpacked the answer to this question, and the answer is summarized in today's big idea. In the Gospels, People directly interacted with God through Jesus, the Son, through the person of Jesus, the Son. Today, as followers of Jesus, we directly interact with God through the Holy Spirit. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the disciples, the people in Israel at that time, they directly interacted with God through the person of Jesus, the Son. Today, as followers of Jesus, you and I, we directly interact with God through the person of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever found yourself thinking this? If only Jesus was here. Oh, if Jesus was here, things would be so much better. Things would be so much better. If Jesus was here, I I could talk to him. If Jesus was here, he could teach me. If Jesus was here, he could encourage me and strengthen me and comfort me. If Jesus was here, he could miraculously release the power of God. If only Jesus was here. The disciples were so fortunate, so blessed, because Jesus, they had direct interaction with God through Jesus. But now we're left without any access. That's a lie. In the Gospels, people directly interacted with God through Jesus, the Son, but today we directly interact with God through the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus said, it's actually to your benefit that I go. Because when Jesus walked the earth, the only time people could interact with the Son was when he was awake, they were awake, when he was in the same geographical location as them, and when he wasn't talking with someone else. There were some real uh, limitations to interaction with the Son when he walked the earth. But now, as a follower of Jesus, you have zero limitations. The Holy Spirit of God, the person of God, the Holy Spirit, he dwells within you. Your spirit and his spirit are in 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, intimate relationship and fellowship. You have more access to God than the disciples did with Jesus. 
That blows my mind. That's your reality as a follower of Jesus. That's our reality as followers of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, you are never alone. You are never abandoned. His spirit lives within you. So take a moment right now and just dwell on that reality. As you breathe and hear your lungs and feel your lungs, realize that the Spirit of God is closer to you than your breath. As you feel your heartbeat, realize that the Spirit of God is closer to you than your very heartbeat. His Spirit, your Spirit, dwelling in intimate unity and relationship right now if you're a follower of Jesus. So what does that mean? What is he here to do in my life then? That's what we're going to address next week when I discuss the role of the Holy Spirit in the next class of our Holy Spirit University course. Let's bow our heads together as we conclude, please.